For many of us, COVID-19 first appeared on the periphery. Short dispatches from Wuhan, a sprawling city of over 10 million people that many Americans had never heard of. Then headlines from the rest of China, from Italy, and then closer to home. At first, the plan was to lock the gates and close the borders. Travel restrictions, embargoes, canceled flights. But by then it was too late. The first COVID case was confirmed in the United States on January 21st, 2020. On March 3rd, officials confirmed a case in North Carolina, then New Hanover County, less than two weeks later. At first, we reported each new case. We reported each new death. Soon, that became an overwhelming task. Then it was life in a pandemic, hand washing, social distancing, masks, feverishly watching the headlines or trying to avoid them, trying to make sense of our new normal. Early predictions oscillated wildly. Some, including then-President Donald Trump's, were optimistic. This was a flu. We'd be fine by summer. Others were more dire. This wasn't the flu. It was the Spanish flu, a plague. Like most everywhere else on the globe, in Wilmington, things shut down. Those who could turned their homes into offices. Those who couldn't waited anxiously on the state's outdated unemployment system. A year later, many of us are getting a shot in the arm. Despite various setbacks, it's been staggeringly fast progress, especially given the early predictions that vaccines could take years or longer. So what have we learned? Where are we now? And what's next? I'm Ben Schockman, and this is a special edition of The Newsroom. In the next hour, we're going to look back over the past year at how the coronavirus has changed our lives. We'll hear from local leaders and dig into how COVID has affected our local economy, our schools, and how we look at the world. Joining me now is Ken Campbell, WHQR's Morning Edition host. Ken, it was on the morning of March 5th, 2020, a slightly chilly Thursday, that you played our first locally produced story on the coronavirus, this one reported by Rachel Keith. So before we get into it, let's listen to some excerpts from that piece, and then we can mentally go back and try to unpack that moment. On primary election day, Governor Roy Cooper announced the first preliminary case of the coronavirus, or COVID-19. As of today, Thursday, March 5th, the number of cases in the U.S. is 100, with a total of... 80% or so that are infected are going to have mild or no symptoms. So if you take that into consideration, there's really no need to wear masks unless you're a healthcare professional that are working with these patients that are sick with the virus, or if you're somebody that's immunocompromised or... So, Ken, that was March 5th, 2020, uh, before Governor Cooper's executive order, ordering people to stay at home before, you know, anything else had really happened. What do you remember from back then? Well, it's all kind of a blur to me, Ben, as the stories just kept coming both uh, on the North Carolina level and nationally. But I recall some people being very early to the mask situation. I saw some people wearing masks before there was much talk about wearing masks. But I also saw a lot of people just going on with their lives as usual, which seemed a little strange to me. I walk out on the street and I saw tourists and and other people wandering around on a warm, sunny day. It seemed to be just like not everyone was hearing the same news stories as other people. It was kind of strange. I, I, I tend to take these things pretty seriously. So I was already being, you know, avoiding people. I didn't have a mask for It took me a little while to get the mask thing going. And of course, we were being told at the time that we didn't need masks. My sense was that there was also some concern about people buying up because there were concerns about masks being needed and they didn't want people to overreact and buy good masks instead of the healthcare workers who needed them. So I remember stories like that. But I also remember just a lot of people going on with their lives as, as if nothing had changed yet. So at that time, I actually hadn't joined the WHQR team yet. Uh, When did the office close down here, and what was that like? 
The office sent it out probably the second week of March. Our fundraising drive had started, and we had done a full day, I think. Maybe we were on our second day, but I remember seeing the news team huddled in one of our conference rooms, and I had a suspicion that something serious was being discussed. And then shortly afterward, the news you know, was spread around the station that we were stopping the drive and that we were sending everyone home because we could turn into a spreading event by having a mix of volunteers and staff and, and not knowing who had been where and been exposed to what. And I had felt for a couple of days that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And so it was very, it felt like exactly the right move to make. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that no matter where they worked. Uh, Ken Campbell, uh, HQR's host of Morning Edition, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and of course, right after the moment that, that Ken is describing for us, uh, Governor Roy Cooper issued his stay-at-home order, and then our new normal as journalists became waiting for the next uh, press briefing with uh, Dr. Mandy Cohen, Governor Cooper, Mike Sprayberry. Uh, we were always a little worried when we were told there'd be one on Wednesday because that could mean new restrictions or some new information was coming out. Whether you worked in the press or you were just watching these meetings as closely as we were, I think this music will be pretty familiar to you. Let's let's take a listen back. Good afternoon. We're here to update you on information related we to the We do expect to begin seeing cases of the new coronavirus. Wash your hands often and avoid touching your face. And today, we have confirmed our first presumptive positive North Carolina results. has identified a second presumptive positive case. We are doing everything we possibly hey, can. And I keep reiterating how fast everything is K changing. K through 12 public schools across our state to close and common sense because they refuse to wear a mask. As of today, we have 24,000, quarter of a million, 488,902 total cases. As of today, we have had 879,825 COVID-19 cases. But of course, Governor Cooper wasn't the only leader dealing with the pandemic. At the city and county levels, local government leaders struggled to keep up with a situation that was changing quickly and in unpredictable ways. I spoke with Mayor Bill Sappho, former County Commissioner Woody White, and current County Chair Julia Olson-Bozeman, and asked them to reflect back and share their thoughts and experiences. When the full seriousness of the emerging pandemic struck Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho, it was late February of 2020 on a routine trip to meet with federal legislators, including Senator Richard Burr. Senator Burr looked me dead in the eye and said, this is real, this is coming. I, I could see it in his eye, I could see it in the way he, he spoke with, to me that day, that it was, it was serious. At the time, Sappho had considered postponing or canceling Wilmington's Azalea Festival. Burr told Sappho he could probably cancel more than that. Then County Commissioner Woody White had heard of the virus and even considered postponing a family vacation. Ultimately, he took the trip, but on his way back, the wave of cancellations started. That's when it dawned on me the seriousness of maybe not the, the disease itself, because that, that was a guessing game, but it dawned on me the seriousness of the policy reaction taking place at every level of government. County Chair Julia Olson-Bozeman remembers being thrown into a daily barrage of emergency briefings and press questions. It was like being in a hurricane situation for weeks. It was like being the, like the eye of the storm is right off of the coast. And you know it's coming, but you can't. It was an invisible monster that we were trying to fight. As case numbers rose, public health experts tried to keep a steady hand on the messaging. But online, dissenting voices and outright disinformation mixed with the official narrative. How serious was the virus? And how serious should the government's reaction to it be? Mayor Sappho turned to the city's history for perspective. 
I asked our city clerk, Penny Sidbury, to go back and take a look at the city's response in 1917, 18 to the, to the Spanish influenza there. What they did in 1917 and 18 was almost exactly what we were doing in 2020. So I knew we were dealing with a coronavirus that was like the Spanish influenza. I knew that the infection rate could be that could, could go that fast if we didn't do something about it. Olson Bozeman turned to the experts. I 100% relied on the New Hanover County Health Department and their leadership because I am not a healthcare professional, and if I was, I would certainly would hate to have uh, this one, you know, on my shoulders. White said he tried to sort out the information about COVID as if it were a legal case, but he drew different conclusions about the pandemic than some others, and in editorials and on social media, cautioned that some of the shutdown measures had gone too far. On Twitter, one commenter suggested ironically that White's comments would, quote, age like fine wine. But despite the death toll a year later, White says he wishes he'd been wrong, but he stands by his opinions. And I remember some guy tweeted back at me and said, this is going to age so badly. But nothing we did made that big of a difference. And and my tweet didn't age badly because this happened again tomorrow, what should, what would and wouldn't be done. I doubt we would immediately close schools. I doubt we would immediately close the beach. For White, it remains important to give local governments, and more importantly individuals, the right to determine how much risk was appropriate. But from Sappho's perspective, a disjointed response was chaotic and deadly. You know, going through a couple of hurricanes, I know what the unified response is from the feds to the states to the locals of how we operated. This particular crisis, which was a national crisis, that was not the case. And I think because of that, I think people died. I think it's so damn important that the messaging from the federal government to the state government to the local government is unified. But Sappho and White both agree they'd like to see an after-action report, not unlike what New Hanover County produced after Hurricane Florence pummeled the region in 2018. Whether that leads to a more streamlined chain of command or a decrease in executive power remains to be seen. At the county, White and Olson Bozeman disagreed on executive power, but they both agreed on one thing they'd like to have seen done differently. The only thing that I think that I wish it would have been differently, but it wasn't my decision, is that the, we should think we should have focused on getting the schools open first instead of business. And what about a day on the horizon when the pandemic has, at the very least, subsided? White, who returned to private life recently, looks forward to traveling. Sappho says he looks forward to seeing people out and about, enjoying their lives. For Olson Bozeman, it's something even simpler. I may not hug everyone I see, but I, I certainly do miss hugging people, touching people even shaking people's hands. Who knew how dirty that was? I'm not going to stop hugging people after that. There's no way. For local leaders, it's been a tough year, but they're not the only ones who have faced difficulties. Coming up later in the show, we'll dig into the contentious debate about reopening schools. And after a quick break, a look into how COVID-19 affected our regional economy. First, though, some thoughts on the pandemic from local residents. Well, it's, it's just changed my perspective on everything, which probably changed everybody's perspective. Say probably three weeks into working from home and seeing the news, I knew this was not going to go well. It's just, it's just so different. It's just so different. I don't know if we'll ever get back to where we were. I don't know.
Welcome back. I'm Ben Schockman. In this special edition of the Newsroom, we're taking a look back at how the COVID-19 pandemic has reshaped our community. Joining me now is Hannah Bracinger, reporter and host of WHQR's All Things Considered. So Hannah, HQR has looked at how the local economy has fared over the past year, and for a town like Wilmington, that means the tourism economy. In your report, you looked at how things are going through the lens of one downtown Wilmington bar and how that fits into the local economy. But I want to back up a whole year, right? It's been a whole year now. When COVID-19 first sort of landed in our laps, what did it look like for, for the downtown tourist industry? I mean, I think there was a lot more kind of fear and a lot of apprehension. I mean, Wilmington's a very tourist, it's a big tourist attraction. And all of a sudden, you have no one traveling. Those April and May months, um, from what I heard from speaking with some members of the Downtown Business Alliance and other folks downtown. It was it was really scary because everything shut down and hotels, no, like I said, no one was traveling. And so there was a lot of fear, especially in those first few months. And I think once things started to gradually reopen, um, there was a lot more of a positive outlook, but still a lot of what's going to happen, what's going to happen to the future of the city. Yeah, Wilmington certainly threw... A lot of the situation, there was a downtown alive and there was, you know, state level efforts to try and let restaurants, um, you know, take drinks to go. Finally, that happens after yeah. you know, 10 months. Um, all right. But let's take a look at how things are right now with your piece. In late 2019, Zach Medford opened a bar in downtown Wilmington. He named it Coglins, a coastal spinoff from his location in Raleigh. Then the unexpected happened. Primary election day, Governor Roy Cooper announced the first preliminary case of the coronavirus. All dine-in and bar areas are closed to the public, while the move allows takeout and delivery to One in four small businesses say they are two months or less from closing permanently, Due to the economic After the initial shutdown in the spring, North Carolina officials announced an extended stay-at-home order through May. They also announced the state's projected reopening plan. Phase one would include retail shops like boutiques and bookstores. Phase two would allow bars and restaurants to reopen at reduced capacity. And phase three would usher in the reopening of entertainment venues like movie theaters or amusement parks. But when phase two was implemented in late May and restaurants were given the ever so cautious yellow light to reopen, bars were omitted due to increased safety concerns and things mostly stayed that way. So Medford, like other bar owners across the state, had to come up with some creative solutions. If you wanted to survive 2020, you had to change your business model completely. You had to serve food in some way. or Yeah, you had, whether it was serve food or completely get rid of liquor and only have wine and beer uh, or you know open up as a grocery store. Uh, you know, it was it was very complicated, very expensive. Bars were eventually allowed to reopen at 30 percent capacity in September of 2020. But that only applied to outdoor seating. So for many bars across the state, the lights remained off, the doors shuttered. And some saw financial relief through programs like PPP loans. But if you don't have a bar to pay people to work in, it doesn't really help to have a payroll protection uh, relief loan. So it's been tough. I mean, I think that we've lost... Uh, dozens of bars, if not hundreds, across the state uh, because of this, the way these restrictions were rolled out. Other business owners and sectors of the local economy have experienced better luck through the pandemic. Thanks to Wilmington's unique assets like its seaport, growing economy, diverse array of industry sectors, and tourism appeal, the region has seen more resiliency than other cities of its size. 
not a single restaurant in the downtown market closed because of COVID, and there are very few in the outlying areas that did as well. That's Terry Espy, president of Wilmington's Downtown Business Alliance. One factor she attributes to Wilmington's success is the Downtown Alive program, which started in June 2020 and opened downtown streets for expanded restaurant seating during the pandemic. That program came to a close in November, and Espy says after that, there were some concerns about what 2021 would bring. Well, January and February are always lull months in Wilmington. In and of itself, every every year we see a drop in those months. With the additional restrictions um, that were put in place, I don't think anyone was prepared for that. For example? I know the retail saw a drop, and that usually, that's the way it goes, especially in a, a tight downtown. If the restaurants are struggling, retail struggles, and as we say, if they fail, It impacts everything because you don't want to live in a downtown environment with closed up buildings. As vaccine efforts ramp up and the state hopefully continues to see a gradual decline in COVID-19 cases, SP says there is a lot of optimism moving into the summer. And a lot of companies are mostly planning on business as usual with a few changes. Um, We actually have restaurants that have converted their whole concept to just pick up and delivery. Two years ago, nobody would, would have done that. But we now people understand that we're, we're not going to see a change in habits even after COVID is gone. And kind of what we're being told, COVID may never be totally gone. It'll become an endemic. And as the region heads into spring, bars have finally been brought back into the mix, too. Last month, Governor Cooper announced that they could finally reopen indoors at 30 percent capacity. But Zach Medford, who ended up having to close his Coglins location in Raleigh, says the move may have been too late for many other bar owners. So you've got a lot of people that they're, they're able to reopen their bar now, but they're facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in back rent. And you know, the question is, will they be able to, when the restrictions are all gone, will they be able to pay off that back rent? But for now, the music is back on inside of Coglins, Wilmington. And if you listen closely, maybe, just maybe, you can hear the sound of a potential return to normalcy. So I definitely get a sense of optimism from this piece, but I I also wanted to point out that you did speak to a person at Coglins who still wanted people to be cautious. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to an individual who was hanging out at Coglins with a few friends this past weekend, a beautiful sunny day in Wilmington where everybody was back out again. It kind of felt like normal a little bit. And they spoke about their experience of actually having COVID-19 and having a lot of family members who were at risk. And, and they mentioned just how nice it was to be out again, but obviously that people still need to be precautious and people still need to be safe. And just watching out to make sure that we don't go in the opposite direction and things go back to how it was a year ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you touch on something that I've heard over and over again, and that's, you know, on a beautiful spring day in town, down Wilmington, it's tempting to feel like things are back to normal. But What's your sense of how close people really are to feeling comfortable going to a crowded bar or going to a concert downtown even? That's a great question. It does seem like if you go downtown on a Friday night, a Saturday night, you really are seeing more of those crowds start to pick back up. You know, granted, I don't know. I know that vaccine numbers are picking up again. Um, So, you know, hopefully a lot of those people are vaccinated and they're being safe. Yeah, I hope so, too. Well, Hannah Bracinger, thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. And of course, concerns about the downtown economy go beyond just the bars and restaurants that are there. The city and county were legitimately concerned about their sales tax revenue. Our own Rachel Lewis Hilburn explored this concern in a piece from May. 
As local governments, counties, and municipalities struggle to understand the impact of COVID-19 on their budgets, they not only have to account for what's happened so far, they're having to make projections about next year's revenues with only limited data. April, which will have the most significant impact, we won't know those results for sales tax until July, and so certainly that's what we're most worried about. But we are estimating about $9 million in shortfall for sales tax, and that's about 2.5% of our overall general fund budget. We'd be remiss if we didn't point out that there's another important part of Wilmington's economy and culture, the arts. With more on that is Rhonda Bellamy, who's executive director of the Local Arts Council and who covers the arts community for WHQR. It's been a brutal year for musicians, artists, galleries, and theaters, but creative thinking has kept the arts alive, and things may be finally looking up. Rhonda, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with this. When did COVID-19 show up on your radar as something that was going to have a serious impact on the arts community? But it wasn't until, I would say, the second week of March, specifically March 11th, at the Star News Theater Awards that it became apparent that Governor Roy Cooper's executive order the day before had had an impact. It was the talk backstage and in bathroom stalls. Uh, in fact, the theater awards were the last major arts event before more rigorous social distancing mandates were instated. So you were sort of there at ground zero for, for artists. Um, how did people react? Well, again, artists and arts venues were among the first to be affected by um, the first round of shutdowns. Many bars and restaurants provide live entertainment. So as soon as it was announced that they were closed for dining service, those gigs dried up immediately. And I think the situation illustrated the plight of workers in our gig economy, who often hold multiple jobs or gigs to make ends meet. So the question that the Arts Council fielded more than any other was what resources were available for those who were a part of the gig economy. You looked at this a lot. What were some of the ways that people tried to make ends meet, both as artists and as as venues? The example that comes to mind, first of all, is that um, Shane Fernando approached me about partnering um, on the Wilson Center Ghost Light series to provide emergency funding for musicians who suddenly lost their livelihood. Festivals... Uh, also had to recalculate. I know the, the Jewish Film Festival, you know, Kukuloris, the Celia Festival. Um, you covered a lot of that. What were some of the ways that they tried to, you know, find a new way to do things in the pandemic era? Well, I'd like to say that we finally discovered through uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic that technology is indeed our friend. So many organizations were able to pivot onto virtual platforms. Prior to that time, I, I think that many people, myself included, thought, you know, the only way you can experience the, the art is, you know, in person. It's such a personal thing. And then we had things like um, curbside cinema that WHQR has been a, a partner with. Yeah, just trying to find ways to uh, do what you do in a socially distanced way. Yeah, and I, and we got to see the return of the drive-in movie, which I thought was fun. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. So it's been a year. Uh, what's your prognosis for the arts in Wilmington after the pandemic subsides? Is there life <laughs> as it used to be? I, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. But in terms of a timeline, I would say that we are looking um, at outdoor events for the fall and, uh, excuse me, outdoor events for the summer, hopefully, and indoor events for the fall. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it will take time. And I think it will take time for people to figure out what they feel comfortable with again. But I certainly look forward to seeing those events come back. I do too, for sure. All right. Well, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking some time with us. I really appreciate it. All right. It's time for a short break. 
Later in the show, we'll explore how people's media diets influence their opinions on COVID and COVID restrictions. And up next, are kids' old homerooms are their new Zoom rooms? Yes, that's a thing. We'll look at how parents, teachers, and kids are coping. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Ben Schockman. Welcome back to a special edition of The Newsroom. For many parents, the challenge of working at home this year has been compounded by the need to simultaneously homeschool kids. As a former teacher and a mom, HQR reporter and producer Rachel Keith understands this story from both sides. Rachel, we recently saw schools vote to offer in-class instruction for all grades, but it's been a long and hardly straightforward process. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this whole year has been up and down, especially for the new members that were inducted in December. I mean, their first meeting that they got sworn in, they had to make a decision to reopen elementary schools. And some of them, like Stephanie Walker and Judy Justice, board members of the New Hanover County School Board, uh, were upset that the day before, um, Julia Olson Bozeman, she's the chair of the commission, said, hey, we have bonuses. Um, We're giving you $750 in bonuses with a match by the school system, and we'd like you to reopen schools. So the next night, they voted to to go back, and a lot of the new board members were really upset about this, that they didn't have time. And we're just seeing a continuation of rehashing and figuring out what to do on a very short notice. For sure. So let's take a look back with your piece at what this long, strange year has been like for the schools. It's been a tumultuous year for our schools, for parents, teachers, and students. After Governor Roy Cooper officially closed North Carolina schools last March, it was almost seven months before New Hanover County families had the choice to return their kids, even part-time, to the classroom. The announcement a year ago caught everyone by surprise. I was out at brunch with two friends, and I got a call from um, the health department And it was, hey, the governor's making an announcement today. Schools are closing. Julie Varnum is the assistant superintendent of support services for New Hanover County Schools. She remembers being surprised just how quickly things unfolded. And I was like, I don't think we expected that. Judy Justice is a current school board member. She says no one could have ever predicted what was to come. It's been a shock since day one. And the surprises kept coming. David Wartman is a former New Hanover County School Board member. He says he thought the initial school closures would be short-lived. We decided to cancel schools for a couple weeks and then see kind of where we were after that. And at some point, the reality kind of sets in that Children aren't going to go back to school. The school system remained closed for the rest of the school year. But as last spring wore on, administrators started planning for a partial return to the classroom. That's when the conflict began. On one side, those who favored returning kids to class, and on the other, those who feared community spread of the virus and thought the risk was too great. David Wartman says parents should have had an option to return. I think that an overwhelming amount of parents wanted the ability to 
to choose to go back to school. And I think that's what was um, frustrating to some of the parents. And, and that's kind of what I advocated for. I, I certainly was never wanted to force kids back to school, but I did believe that it was important to give parents that option. Ultimately, the school board decided to reopen online only for the first nine weeks of the fall semester. They then gave parents an option for a part-time return in mid-October. Carla Turner is the assistant public health director for New Hanover County. She says during this turbulent time, school board members look to her and her department to guide them through their reopening decisions. She says they advise them to follow CDC guidelines and state guidance on how and when to safely reopen schools. We keep referring back to that because that has got the most recent information, the most recent science, and the the best step-by-step process on how to move forward. Then, right before the holidays, school administrators began planning for a full-time return for elementary students. Board member Judy Justice was nervous about it. She says she lost some of her close family members to the virus. But ultimately, at their January 13th meeting, the board voted not to return elementary students to the classroom, even though the administration had made specific plans to do so. Luckily, the majority said, oh, slow down. And because of that, the timing has worked out well. If we'd opened up right after Christmas, we could have had a huge disaster on our hands. But not everyone agreed with that decision. At that January meeting, school board vice chair Nelson Bollier cast the lone dissenting vote and urged the full return to the classroom. His concern was the mental health of the students. I thought the kids needed to be in school. I thought that after 10 months, the damage that we were doing to our students was profound. But he says local decisions would have been easier if there had been a statewide policy. I'm very disappointed with the lack of clear guidance from the state. I would have preferred that they set up a actual metric for each county and just said, when you're here, this is where you go. In the midst of it all, teachers felt caught in the crossfire. Kaylee Pear is a sixth grade social studies teacher at the International School at Gregory. She's also the organizing lead for the New Hanover County Association of Educators. You know, when the pandemic first hit, it was kind of weird because all of a sudden, like, teachers were like the national heroes and they're, you know, oh, we're working so hard to teach kids from home and we're adapting to this strange new situation. And then By the fall, it was like, why don't these lazy teachers want to get back in the classroom? I think a lot of teachers feel like things really shifted all of a sudden, and I think that makes a lot of teachers mad. Judy Justice agrees that the public was hard on teachers. We were getting crazy emails. I was getting phone calls. It was sad because these these are wonderful people that are doing great things for our kids. And, you know, we're, we're going to be struggling to keep teachers in the profession after what's gone on the last year. And Pear says she now has concerns over social distancing. When one student tests positive, everyone who's been within six feet of them for more than 15 minutes is going to have to quarantine. Outside of health concerns, Julie Varnum says the school system hopes to offer opportunities this summer to offset academic losses. We're not done recovering. If we open up five days a week for everybody, we're not finished with the recovery efforts. That's going to go on for quite some time. There is no way of knowing how the rest of the school year will turn out, how mass vaccinations, restriction rollbacks, and emerging variants of COVID-19 will affect virus positivity rates. But one thing is clear, it's been a tough year for everyone. Nelson Bollier. We're a family in New Hanover County, and 
we get mad at each other, we fight with each other. But when we look back at this time, I think we're going to remember a community that survived together, that made decisions together, and that strove to do what was best for everybody. And the dilemma over reopening schools amid a pandemic shows that what's best for everybody is open to interpretation. So this week, we saw a continuation of that very debate. There was a 5-2 vote to reopen in-class instruction for all parents who want it, but there are still some concerns. Rachel, what are you hearing? Yeah, some of the teachers I've been talking to are concerned about all the different preps that they're going to have to do. And I know at the board meeting, administration was saying that there is just a continuation of what they're already doing. But they are tired of trying to do in-person instruction, balance the online version of their classroom, and it's becoming very stressful for them. They're also kind of upset about the lack of substitutes, yes, that pool has gotten larger since um, January. They've added about 76 new substitutes, and now they have 250 um, that are on call. But they're still wary if they have their classes have to quarantine. What does that mean for overall management of the classroom? There's just a lot of unknowns, and you know they are still very concerned about their health and also teaching their students the best way that they can. So a lot to follow, and I know that you will be on it. Rachel Keith, thank you so much. Thank you. With multiple vaccines now available and teachers getting shots, there may be some light now at the end of the tunnel. HQR reporter Caitlin Freund took a first-hand look at the process. Here's her report. All right, what's your name? Uh, Caitlin Freund. I have a vaccine appointment. Okay. It's a steady stream of folks checking in at the Walgreens COVID vaccination site in Burgaw, North Carolina, in early March. We're doing 60 shots today. Wow. Is that Two every 15 minutes. I drove 30 minutes to be here for my first dose of the Moderna vaccine. And I look a little different than the other folks in line. What do you mean? I'm 67. What are you... <laughs> I'm actually in my 20s, and I'm the youngest person in line that morning by a few decades. And I wasn't in one of the designated groups approved for the vaccine yet. So how did I get a vaccine before people like my parents? We had a glitch. Technical issues with vaccination websites have run rampant during the COVID vaccine rollout, and North Carolina isn't immune. At the vaccination station I'm at in Burgaw, an automated scheduling system underbooked appointments, leaving valuable vaccine doses at risk of expiring before use. So for a brief afternoon, the Walgreens and Burgaw booked anyone who could come in to avoid wasting those doses. I know you guys had some issues with uh... the appointment scheduler. Yeah. Is that all sorted out? We're getting there. Okay. I think it's good now. Just computer stuff, you know. In Georgia, a computer scheduled hundreds of people for the same time slot and allowed three times the number of people to sign up for an appointment. In New York, hundreds of seniors lined up one mid-February morning after being told to come in for a second vaccine appointment between 7 and 8 a.m., only to learn the appointment offer was a computer error. Other health officials at their wits' end with vaccine websites resorted to Eventbrite to schedule vaccine shots. Typically, that site is used for organizing low-stake events like bar crawls. Okay, do you guys call me for the second appointment, or do uh, I call you? <laughs> we thought the machine was going to do all this. Uh -huh. The machine has not been acting like it's supposed to. Yeah, we'll see. After waiting the recommended 15 minutes for side effects, I get in my car and squirt hand sanitizer in my palm, 
before peeling off my double masks. A fresh band-aid on my left arm peeks out my t-shirt sleeve. In four weeks, I can get the second dose, and two weeks after that, I'll be fully vaccinated. Then, for the first time in nearly a year, I'll be able to hug my parents. Now, it's just a matter of getting my second shot appointment. Joining me now is Caitlin Freund. Caitlin, reporting during this pandemic has often focused on the numbers, especially when it comes to tracking the spread of the virus. Presenting accurate data is obviously really important to our listeners, but talk to me a little bit about how you've balanced that kind of data with stories. Sure. So at NPR, we always want to make sure our reports are factual and backed up with data. We always try to use trusted sources like the AP to make sure we've got the numbers right exactly. But contextualizing those numbers is what is really important in our job. I spoke with an ER nurse early on in this pandemic, kind of when this first started when cases were surging and hospitals were starting to put together makeshift COVID wings. And, you know, it it really is one thing to hear about the COVID positive rate climbing, but it's something else to hear an ER nurse describing his shift. Yeah, let's uh, let's have a listen to what he told you back in April of 2020. When you intubate somebody, all those bugs, all those germs, anything that's in their respiratory tract is going to get cast up and out of their throat and into the room. It's a huge, huge exposure risk. A flimsy little paper gown is not going to stop any sort of viral particles. It was just really surreal to me understanding that I was in a situation with a highly virulent strain of a new disease and I was not protected. Wow, that's that's pretty intense. Caitlin, tell me tell me a little more about what it was like to talk to him. I'll never forget the tiredness in that ER nurse's voice when he told me about a perfectly healthy 30-something who walked into the ER with shortness of breath. That person tested positive for COVID and never made it out of the hospital. So while the data is important, of course, when we talk to people on the front lines, we do hear the more human side of the numbers. And, you know, as we continue to social distance from one another, the human side of the data is more important now than ever. Well, we certainly appreciate you bringing those stories. Caitlin Freund, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. After another short break, we'll be back with a report from HQR's Coastline host, Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Rachel has looked into the improbable politics of COVID and how people's media diet affects how they view the COVID-19 crisis. I watch Fox News on TV. I've got Breitbart. I've got Newsmax. I have the New York Times. I have the Washington Post. I don't look at Fox anymore because they're crazy. When you see the ones that are considered to be left-leaning, they don't cover both sides of the subject. Do Atlantic uh, Magazine. I read their stuff quite a bit. I read Washington Post. That's coming up after the break. Please stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Ben Schockman, and this is a special edition of the Newsroom. Over the past several years, HQR's Coastline host, Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, has taken a hard look at America's deep political divide. Now, one can imagine a world where fighting a pandemic would unite rather than divide us. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Here's Rachel's report. Meet Daniel Mask. He's a retired copier salesman and a current balloon artist. You know, those twisty balloons that show up at kids' parties. I love Christmas and St. Patrick's Day. It's a lot of fun. And I do a lot of uh, leprechauns. He left Charlotte and moved to Brunswick County near the end of 2020 because of the pandemic. There's a million people in Charlotte. There's only 100,000 or less here, and it's not as dense. 
let's be clear. His name, Daniel Mask, is real, and it conveniently reflects his beliefs about slowing the spread of COVID-19. He's most definitely a mask wearer. And last year, he just wasn't comfortable with the behavior he saw around Charlotte. And it was pretty bad there. You know, a lot of millennials, you know, people weren't wearing masks and not really taking care of themselves. And when the governor ordered many businesses to close, Mask says it had to be done. I mean, I suffered badly. I lost my business. I had a business that I built up for 12 years and I lost everything. William Kramer retired to Brunswick County from New York in 2003. He says he's fine with what he calls common sense measures, but the governor's decision to shut down bars and restaurants, gyms and movie theaters, that's overreach. A lot of conservatives think that these governors are dictators, and a lot of them act like it in many ways. You know, they're going against actual law, you know, because most of these things that they're doing They have emergency powers that last for 60 or 90 days. Well, they're going on a year now. Dr. Paul Kamitska is chief epidemiologist at New Hanover Regional Medical Center. Because the body of research on COVID-19 continues to grow, he says scientists are learning more about what works. The United States, though, is an example of one of the worst handlers of the pandemic. We have had over 530,000 deaths, and compare that to, for example, the country of Taiwan, which has twice the population of North Carolina, and the total number of COVID deaths, at least as of a few days ago, is nine. So nine versus 530,000. Dr. Kamitska says the countries that did well took the virus seriously from the beginning. Taiwan, New Zealand, and South Korea, for example, put a high priority on testing, testing early and extensively, something the U.S. did not do. And if the U.S. had done so, Kamitska suggests the decision to shut down businesses might not have been necessary. So long as there is a high degree of adherence to masking and distancing, you don't have to lock down. William Kramer says he didn't mind the governor's mask mandate when it was first announced. It was the closing of businesses he found and still finds draconian. You know, that was just pushing it a little bit too far. I wear a mask when I go out. When I go into the store, outside in the air, I don't wear a mask. If I was in a concert and it was all outdoors, maybe I'd put it on just to make other people feel better. But I followed it due to the fact that it makes other people feel safe. Me, I didn't really worry about catching it from somebody else. Balloon artist Daniel Mask wears his mask everywhere. He considers Governor Cooper slow to mandate masks. He should have done it way earlier. (laughs) Way earlier. I was way ahead of him. Mask double masks now, based on the advice of the CDC. NHRMC chief epidemiologist Paul Kamitska says there are good reasons current policy is different from early guidance from the CDC and Dr. Anthony Fauci. People like Anthony Fauci now feel at more liberty to to say there was a long spell there where basically the, the scientists were shut out and so that they could not actually speak science. And the other reason, as the body of research grows, so does the database. The CDC revises its recommendations when it gets better information. But I think it would be misguided to fault the CDC for seemingly changing their recommendations. One thing that is clear, says Kamitska, is that this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And he worries about the states that are changing their policies. All it takes is a significant proportion of the population not doing 
the masking and distancing and for a virus as contagious as this one is. And the data suggests that it's getting more and more contagious. Whatever the science, the conflicting and patchwork policies across the U.S. tend to fall along partisan political lines. Just last week, on March 10th, the one-year anniversary of Governor Cooper's statewide emergency order, Republican House Majority Leader John Bell filed a bill to limit the governor's emergency authority. The governor has exercised absolute power by dictating what businesses can and cannot open, how schools can operate, and when and where people can gather. We all agree that the COVID-19 pandemic requires emergency action. But the current law that granted these emergency powers was simply not written with today's challenges. There needs to be more bipartisan input and checks and balances. The bill is now working its way through several committees. So how do people's political views shape their opinions about health policy? Daniel Mask says he generally trusts mainstream news sources, but he also seeks out primary sources. All news outlets, including yours, have an agenda. He means NPR. I don't look at Fox anymore because they're crazy. And I don't do a whole lot of reading. I do Atlantic uh, Magazine. I read their stuff quite a bit. I read Washington Post. I read uh, Wall Street sometimes. He used to watch MSNBC, but has decided they lean way too far to the left. William Kramer, though he leans conservative, also seeks out a range of news sources, but he says he trusts Fox the most. I watch Fox News on TV. I've got Breitbart. I've got Newsmax. I have the New York Times. I have the Washington Post. I go to all of these sources. The only thing that I find is when you see the ones that are considered to be left-leaning, they don't cover both sides of the subject. But none of this should be political, says Dr. Kamitska. The best way to stay informed, he says, is to seek out science-based reports. The one thing about science is science is inherently not political. And uh, if one simply adheres to the science, then you will uh, do so much better in a situation like this. Despite their divergent views on COVID policy, both William Kramer and Daniel Mask are glad to have received their COVID-19 vaccinations. The shot, however, isn't yet changing Daniel Mask's behavior. He's certainly not ready to go out to restaurants. God, no. No, no. We stop restaurants because I don't trust what people put into the food. Too many hands touching stuff, so we decided we're going to make our own food. If William Kramer could make the policy for the state, he would open things up, leaving the mask question and social distancing as decisions people make for themselves. I would probably go for opening just about everything up, stressing still social distancing, stressing, hey, if you want to make other people feel good, wear a mask, but I'm not going to tell you to wear a mask. When your group comes up to be vaccinated, get vaccinated. Daniel Mask worries about the variants, and Dr. Kamitska says it's true that if people drop their guard too quickly, we could see another COVID spike. But Kamitska does believe things could get back to normal this year if people keep their masks and their distance until most people have the shot. If we do a good job of really pushing the vaccines over the next couple months, we may be only two, three months away from really having to emphasize masking anymore. That's a goal to shoot for. 
Daniel Mask has his sights set on 2022, though, when he plans to relaunch his balloon twisting business under a new name, Danny Boy Balloons. But he says he'll probably always wear a mask. I will wear a mask forever because my name is Dan Mask. Rachel Lewis Hilburn, WHQR News. And that's it for this special edition of the Newsroom. Thanks to our HQR staff, Caitlin Freund, Hannah Bracinger, Rachel Keith, Ken Campbell, Rhonda Bellamy, and Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. This special edition was produced and co-written by Doc Jardin and engineered by Andrew Craig. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and it will air again this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can now find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and it will soon be available on Google Play. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Newsroom.